Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. And I'm Shiv, and today we are thrilled to have Ted Scheinman with us. Ted is senior editor at Specific Standard Magazine. His work often focuses on climate coverage, and he reported from the United Nations 2015 Climate Summit in Paris. He is also the author of Camp Austin, My Life as an Accidental Jane Austen Superfan, which tells the story of his indoctrination into the enthusiastic world of Jainites, along with a comprehensive study of Austin's work. Thank you so much for joining us, Ted. Thanks for having me. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal life. Can you share a moment with us? Yeah, I suppose one important moment of that sort for me was when I took a long pause out of journalism. I took a five years pause to go to graduate school in 18th century politics and literature, which was a not so much a pivot as like a leap in some ways. Um, and I had a few reasons for being drawn to that work. Uh, in part, I was really frustrated in journalism by a feeling of uh, oh, impermanence, you know, and I think a lot of journalists uh, alternate between struggling in and reveling in this, but you know, you're, you do a story and then you move on. Um, these things can feel disposable. It can feel as though people forget about them six days or six hours later. Um, and so it was refreshing and I think eye-opening to me to go back and read journalism, political tracks, uh, satirical poetry that has, that has lasted for 300 years, which is very, very different from the sort of I don't know, news and analysis that I was writing and editing back in DC. Uh, so I spent five years in graduate school doing a fundamentally very different sort of work, um, but I kept noticing these consonances between my work as a journalist and as a researcher. Um, you know, I had been a reporter, now I was digging into these archives, sort of trying to figure out, well, who wrote this anonymous manuscript? Can we tell based on the handwriting, the lilt of, of the signature, et cetera? Um, and eventually it, just, it felt like doing journalism on a longer scale, basically. Um, now, I, I, I slipped back into journalism in, you know, in a largely satisfying way. I moved back across the country to go back in full time after freelancing throughout graduate school. Um, I do think that coming back, having, having done like rigorous academic training in a field that is not immediately applicable to my work was actually tremendously useful to me, um, not least because I you know, develop material for a lot of freelance pieces and a book for my time there. Um, but also just because I, I think it sort of reset my brain, which had, uh, I don't know, gotten locked in this, uh, like, news cycle sickness where you're like, oh, none of this will actually last. None of this matters. And that might sound familiar. A lot of people are struggling with that now. Yeah, so jumping to your book, you wrote about Jane Austen. I guess the question we have is, why Austen? Why Austen for you? Uh, why do you think she's important as a kind of literary figure in general? Great, yeah, a huge question. Austen came onto my radar in graduate school mainly as a sort of fun diversion for most of my real work. I was working on, again, like political and satirical poetry and on a lot of novelists, most of whom were women, but I wasn't really working as far ahead as Jane Austen. I was working earlier in the 18th century, but I got an opportunity to make something small, like $200, by working for a weekend as a graduate student assistant at a Jane Austen summer camp, which had about, I think that year, about 80 people attending. And I had never seen anything like this before, where these 
these super fans who dress up like the characters from the books and come and quote the novels at you while they're dancing with you. It's just a whole other world. So I, I sort of got sucked into it. I wrote some freelance pieces just because, you know, if you, if you find yourself in an interesting place and you're anything at all like a writer, then you end up trying to sell a story about it. And, um, and then it just sort of took on a life of its own. I wrote a few more stories, and then someone requested a book. And uh, so th there's that. I should also say that even if I wasn't like particularly like um, dr drawn in a magnet-like way toward Austin, uh, I do have something of uh, like Austin mania or a love for Jane Austen in my blood. My mother is a professor of uh, British literature at Colgate University in upstate New York, and her her research has mainly focused on Austen. Most of the, most of the articles and scholarly journals that she's written are all on Jane Austen. My sister's name is Jane. Uh, they didn't do an ultrasound beforehand to, to determine what my gender was going to be, but they were all convinced that I was going to come out a girl and that I was going to be named Jane. Um, I didn't actually learn that until, I don't know, sometime in the past year. Uh, so there is a whiff of destiny to this whole thing. Um, but it's also, it's really, really goofy. It's like basically I grew up watching my mom um, sort of lead her students through this world. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, that's weird. And I don't know how, how any grown person would ever do that. And then I ended up becoming one of them. So, so you know, irony will get you. Yeah. You've written a lot about Austin and the community that surrounds her work in the 21st century rather than just uh, what she wrote about in an academic sense. What do you think distinguishes the Jainites, as you refer to them, from other communities that are more online-based, maybe, that have really popped up in the 21st century around websites like Reddit or Twitter, where there are devoted superfans to just about anything? Great. So you mean, uh, how are Jainites different from fans of things other than Jane Austen, right. especially in like a hyper-network world? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, think th I think it's self-referential in a way that... Um, and has been for a long time in a way that these communities um, like tend to be in a natural way, right? Like whenever you're, uh, you know, you're in a Reddit thread or an online community or whatever, you're sort of united with certain factions. You generally have certain uh, grudges against the moderator. You, you know, there, there, there's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of um, I think continuity between between fan communities. Uh, generally, they tend to have more in common than they do um, than they differ from each other. But I, I think Austin is in some ways unique, or at least rare, because she is like a site or a focus of fandom who also gives you like keys about how to interact with the, um, with the people that you find yourself in company with. Uh, so I'm trying to think of a uh, da -da -da, good comparison in an online community. But I mean, the, you know, my basic thesis about Austin, I suppose, is that she... Um, her books offer you scripts and correctives and what to do and what not to do in certain social situations. I don't mean that. Uh, in, uh, I, I don't mean by saying that to uh, sort of reduce her to some sort of commonplace book or an etiquette book or anything like that. She's obviously much more. I tend to get very bored with teachers when they say the moral of this novel is X, Y, or Z. Um, but what you see animated in those novels is like you know ver various competing visions of how to organize these small communities. Um, and by the end of the book, usually you've learned a couple of bad ways to do it, and you've learned a couple of good ways to do it. So I, you know, I think the Austin community is sort of self-regulating in a way that is inculcated by the novels. To what extent do you think her didactic purpose in teaching us different ways to behave and not to is accurate and still applicable, and one that you try to follow yourself or would recommend? 
Uh, it's a great question. I'm, so I, I don't... I don't know that I, w- I would say that she set out to write didactic novels, um, but I do think that the lessons that people tend to draw from these novels is, is reasonably universal. Um, now, you can read the books in the wrong way, right? And, and you read Pride and Prejudice, you're like, oh, cool. Well, so the moral is that you shouldn't marry clergymen. And you're like, no, no, that's not the moral. Just because it would have been bad to marry that clergyman, that's not the lesson. Um, so, it, of course, it's impossible to, to misread these things. And um, there will be very competing, very heated sort of competing takes on all of this when you're in Austin world between, between people who think that actually, no, you know, you can make an argument that Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice is actually redeemable. He is uh, unjustly maligned by critics and even by Lizzie Bennet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know, though. I, I think most people like know who the bad people are and know who the good people are. Um, Austin is a very um, careful stage managerial presence. She, um, she really guides the reader quite well. So, um, so how much of that do I bring in my own life? Uh, probably not as much as I should. I, you know, I, I think she's been especially useful to me on friendship, um, especially on how to deal with like growing apart from friends. Austin's very, very good on that. Um, like growing apart from friends without resenting them or resenting yourself for it. Um, and also when you're growing apart unnaturally and ought not to be. Um, yeah. I, it, for me, it's not so much that she teaches lessons as that like inhabiting the consciousness that she sort of creates on the page um, tends to put you in a slightly more lucid frame of mind when you're thinking about your own set of relations and so forth if that makes sense. Um, speaking to that, how kind of writing can have that effect on a person, you've written about the power of writing, how it could honestly save lives. Um, in a world that's always on edge, what value do you place on that power of writing? And do you think it's a, if we want to extend this far, a form of escapism? And do you think that's useful? Yeah, so, okay. Um, I, have, I have written about academic research that... Uh, that bears on um, you know depressives and reading habits and so forth and um, and how reading books and especially sharing books um, can actually forestall um, people committing self harm. Say that you know that can be a little wishy washy. It seems to have worked out well for a lot of the organizations that have used it. Um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous comes to mind, which of course is not just reading anything. It's not like oh here's a you know Thomas De Quincey book or here's an you know E.L. James book. It's it's a very specific book that gives you very specific directions, um, and I'm sure that you could read the wrong book at the wrong time and get some very dangerous ideas from it um, if you're in a place of deep psychic pain and at risk for hurting yourself. Um, I think a mix of escapism and sort of getting right to the heart of the matter is. I don't know, has proven to be a good balance for some people who, I, who like I know in recovery or who I've interviewed who are in recovery. Um, there are people who will balance, uh, say, say in rehab or, or after being hospitalized for, a, for an attempt on themselves, um, will read a mix of really, really serious um, or sort of pertinent moral writings and also have, oh, I don't know, what they might call junk, but, but you know, it's pleasure reading, which is, there's nothing, there's nothing trashy about that. Pleasure is important. Um, and it's a great reason to stay alive. So, uh, so I mean, I love the question about escapism. I think, I think, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm certainly not going to give people a reading list for what to read to to keep yourselves alive. That's too much responsibility for one man to bear. But, um, I mean, certainly for me, in, in moments of darkness, that mix between escapism and being like, actually, you know, 
It's that durability thing I was talking about. This text has lasted for 50 years, 100 years, 300 years, and it's been helping people the whole time. Um, Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. It was the only book that, that uh, it was the only thing actually that Samuel Johnson said could ever get him out of bed before 11 a.m. was reading this book that sort of explained in a slightly satirical but slightly dead serious way um, the varieties of human misery. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think finding that kind of fellowship in the book, not just, oh, someone else has found a solution, but something as simple as someone else has suffered in the same way, um, that can be life-giving. To transition from the benefits of writing on individual readers to perhaps benefits on society and the world on a greater scale, uh, Shiv mentioned that a lot of your writing, especially uh, the work you do with the Pacific Standard, has focused on climate coverage. I'm curious whether you see that writing as just an opportunity to tell good stories about something important, or if you really try to advance certain causes and call attention to particular courses of action in a pressing issue. You know, it's it's a very touchy question, I think, and it's one question on which climate journalists are currently pretty divided, I think, um, even among people who otherwise broadly agree about nearly everything. Um, there are... I mean, I'll say in brief, for me, it's a mix between this is a really, really good story. It, it, you know, it's a no-brainer that we'd report on it. And, oh, let's see, how do we frame this for maximum impact uh, to get the most attention, not just for our articles so we can get clicks and, and Google ads and so forth. Not Google ads, but, you know. Um, and and also whether we can advance the conversation on, on the topic. Um, now... Every magazine, every newspaper, website, et cetera, wants to be, quote, unquote, advancing the conversation or, or moving the dial or moving the needle or whatever the cliche of the week is. Um, but on certain issues, right, like climate change, um, for some readers and for some publications, it would be maybe uh, hand, like gun violence um, would be another one. Uh, it, it, you know, these things tend to take on a sort of uh, a very clear moral, sometimes even like a spiritual or religious tone. Um, and the fact is that, that, that research is a little divided on, what, on, on how you can best communicate climate science in order to create change at the, you know, at the population level in, in voting patterns, in consumption habits, and so forth. Um, right now, the, the trend seems to be that we, people generally agree that it's best to focus on solutions, to live in the solution rather than to dwell on the doom and the gloom, because if people think, well, we're all in a very bad place and there's nothing that can be done about it. They're just going to keep burning fossil fuels and, more important, empowering, uh, what's the word, political parties to, um, uh, to sort of ransack the environment. Uh, so it is incumbent on a free press, I think, to, to let people know that this is real. Uh, for a long time, it was sort of considered subject to debate, whether or not it was. Uh, obviously, in some corners, that debate is still going on. Um, in, in my case, it's a, it's a mix, uh, and I, I think of it less as, like, zealous advocacy and more about, like, well, you know, the more traditional question, how can we get readers to look at this in a new way? It's the same way I approach most stories, honestly. Uh, I do take the sort of research on persuasion very seriously, because I think that's an important part of our brief, um, but I also don't, I don't know. I'm very hesitant to sort of come across um, or to let any of my writers or staffers come across as, as activists. Um, and that's not out of any sort of really outdated uh, affection for or um, 
or affiliation with the uh, the notion that you always have to be like utterly neutral. You have to have the view from nowhere, or the whatever. Um, it's a little bit more about keeping the trust of readers and not not repeating ourselves all the time. Um, profits are great. They're also very repetitive, and um, so so it's really tough. I mean, you have a responsibility. I don't have children yet, but like at some point, if you know, if if warming slows a little bit, I might consider it. Uh, but regardless, like, who, you know, I have friends who are having children. They're great children. I really want the earth to be excellent for them. Um, so in that sense, I am hideously biased in favor of the earth. Um, anyway, so that's a really long-winded answer. But you know what I mean? It, it's, it's hard to disentangle these things, but it's important for, to me that, like, my journalists, given the nature of our magazine, not come across as pure advocates. Yeah. And talking about advocates, I mean, if you just take a scroll through your work for Pacific Standard, a lot's going to be labeled so social justice. And one interesting thing I came across is you've done some pretty interesting articles about prisons and um, kind of judicial reform and things like that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, you mean how I, how I got into it? or yeah. Yeah. I suppose, it, well, so I was living in North Carolina for five years during grad school, which was which was great for me, you know, I, like living in Carborough and Chapel Hill is fantastic, it's an amazing school. Um, I, I like large parts of the American South, um, and it's also relatively easy for me to do my thing in the American South. Um, so so it, was, it was really cool. At the same time, North Carolina, basically starting a little before I moved down there, um, I moved down in 2010, was in the midst of this sort of like little microcosm for what was happening to the country on a larger scale, which was this really aggressive, uh, in the case of North Carolina, GOP takeover, um, and this really aggressive rolling back of a variety of laws. I mean, you know, there was, oh no, you, you can't actually institute any development um, laws or guidelines based on climate science. You can only do it based on historical record. Um, they threw away the North Carolina Racial Justice Act, which um, gave uh, people of color on death row, you know, a final appeal given, you know, a really, really conspicuous history um, of, uh, of racial bias, um, not just in the court system at large within the state, but specifically um, on the death penalty. So, uh, so North Carolina was going backwards on a lot of stuff while I was there, uh, and one of the biggest ones was, was prison rights, especially for, like, disabled people and, and particularly minority people. So... Um, I also, you know, had neighbors who were recently out and could talk to me directly about some of these, um, some of these issues. Um, you know, whenever you get a story from a friend or a neighbor or like an acquaintance, you're going to do some fact-checking. Obviously, you're not just going to print what that person says. But it, you know, got me interested and got me some really good sources. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's still going on in North Carolina that is not in line with, um, you know, the Constitution. Uh, the, there's... You know, you can sort of be indefinitely detained in North Carolina if you're poor enough uh, still. And a loophole that South Carolina actually closed the year before North Carolina um, refused to. So, it, you know, th there were just all these, you know, I'm, I'm not explaining this very well at all, sorry. But, uh, da, da, da. yeah, so North Carolina was going through a major reckoning with its, uh, with its criminal justice process, and it was pushing everything backwards. Um, I was there, and it was um, it was something I was passionate about and uh, and able to report on. So, uh, you know, ease of access is a big thing. Not ease of access, but but access and and having a story shoved right in your face um, helps, honestly. But it's you know it's something I've cared about since since high school. It's you know I think 
like many Americans. So, Yeah, so one of the final questions we like to ask our guests is, what is your personal definition of success, and how would you help students in defining success for themselves? Great, okay. So it's really tempting right now. Uh, in, in the hyper-atomized world we live in, uh, with sort of natural disasters multiplying, refugees knocking on our door, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's very, very tempting to make enough money that you can build a compound. Get the, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, so what people refer to as fuck you money. You get the fuck you money, you know, you'll be fine. It doesn't really matter if the oceans rise. Um, as long as you keep those people off your property, then you and your people are going to be fine. Um, I, I, I think that a lot of people would not admit to having felt this, um, this pressure or this temptation. Um, I think a lot of Americans are feeling it, and you can tell it because they're silently telling you that by, by how they vote. Um, and, and actually a, a whole host of behaviors. So I would encourage young people to push against that, um, which is not to say lay down all worldly possessions and follow whoever. But um, with the global economy in crisis mode, my advice would not necessarily be immediately to jump into business school, for example. Um, I think it's important to develop a diverse set of skills that will, you know, that will serve you whether or not the electrical grid continues to function. Um, but mainly, I, I think it's important to uh, to develop the skills uh, to sort of build and shape communities in, in healthy ways. And you can do that through a variety of disciplines, right? You can do it, you know, you can through a variety of social science work, certainly through the arts, certainly through the hard sciences. Um, but it's much bigger than, than your actual field of study. Uh, and it's the sort of thing, like we're all going to be adapting to new communities as, as we move, as other people move around us, um, whether or not, uh, you know, whether, whether or not everyone likes it, we're going to be in a very different world quite soon. Um, and so I, I think paying attention to how we, how we create community and the role, uh, the active role that we play, even if we don't always accept it in creating that community, is really, really important. Um, I think that's the locus of locus. Who says locus? I think that's where you find happiness. Um, and so, yeah, so that's my sort of like communitarian vibe. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Ted, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.